Welcome to another episode of Skip and Telecast, a podcast about strategy, leadership, and intelligence. I'm Cam Mackey. Today we talk with Angela McCain of BP about what her intelligence team does to identify, illuminate, and ultimately invest in technologies and innovations that will help accelerate the energy transition as BP seeks to meet its goal of being carbon net zero by 2050. start, Angela, uh, maybe under, as understanding a little bit about your role at, at BP. You know, we, we sometimes assume that competitive intelligence means we just look at competitors, but at BP, you really are focusing on helping accelerate the energy transition. So maybe mm-hmm. tell us a little bit more about how that works, help ground us in, in what you do. Sure. Yeah, I'd love to. And, and thank you so much for the invite. It's great to be here. Um, yeah, so, so my team in BP um, Actually, we've been around in different guises for a while, but the team that we have today is newly created as of this year, January this year. And the thinking behind that is exactly as you just described, it's the energy transition. It's the fact that BP needs to change and has boldly stated to the market externally that we are going to change from an international oil company to an integrated energy company. In order to do that, Um, We need a really powerful insights and intelligence function. And to your point, it's important that we don't actually get too distracted by only looking at known competitors. Um, I think that would be a real trap if we were to fall into that because we can accidentally spend a lot of time looking to the right of you, looking to the left of you, look who's doing what, are they doing this next? Whereas actually what we need to do is focus on what BP needs to do. And part of that is actually where are the next competitors coming from, the new ones, the emerging competitors, Um, because the landscape we're operating in is changing so dramatically as as we make this change. Uh, I also think, you know, from the point of view of accelerating the energy transition, sure, you need to know who your competitors are, of course. Um, But there's also a thing around other aspects of the intelligence offer. And this is where the word technology becomes so important because a lot of what we do is actually looking at where are the new technologies and innovations emerging that will make a difference here? Where are the technologies that we can bring in and deploy in our our existing businesses and operate more effectively, operate more efficiently, decarbonize, um, make real positive steps towards the ambitious agenda that we set out. Um, Equally, it's about trying to understand startups, um, new companies that are springing up all over the place because there's a lot of there's a lot of energy behind this, there's a lot of energy behind the energy transition, especially right now. It feels like this year, whether it's partly a post-pandemic effect, whether it's partly that um, people are realizing even just looking at the year we're in, 2020 to 2021, and this is a vital decade we act now or or will regret it, frankly. And because we know that, we're seeing uh, real money being put behind, you know, funds for making a difference here. We're seeing new ideas springing up in in startups and and universities and and other less conventional competitors and collaborators. And and that's really the role of my team is is to track all of that and and help the company make good decisions around that. That, That's great. And it sounds also daunting and and very, very large in scope. And 
And I, I love what you said there about, you know, not just the traditional known competitors, but also the next competitors, which, which uh, you know, could, could, of course, be partners um, mm -hmm. as well. And, th and that's something that our, our you know, kickoff speaker today, Dr. Helmuth Ludwig, talked about, about this, where um, he said it eloquently and I won't, but, you know, you have to walk and chew gum at the same time. So you have to, you know, yeah. monitor and, and drive insights from the known competitor pool as well as, as, well as taking a much broader view um, now, now, how does that actually work with, within your organization? Um, are there different intelligence groups within BP um, that are looking, you know, generally more at the startup and the technology uh, piece versus the traditional known competitors? How, how does that interplay work, Angela? Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly the way that we've designed the structure um, so far. So, so this year, we've got an entirely new organizational structure because we've reinvented the entire company to get after this ambition um, and what we have done is we've said okay we need really powerful intelligence to make really good decisions um, but yes let's have specialist teams that are focused on different angles here so we do have um, a stellar competitive intelligence um, team who are doing a lot of the competitive intelligence that we've been doing and need to do for a long time in terms of understanding you know, financial results in certain terms of understanding um, the oil and gas majors and their strategy and you know, how, how, how we're all addressing this challenge. And we also have a um, market intelligence team looking at you know, different markets regionally, some where we've already got a strong presence, some where we want to enter for the first time. We've got um, a business intelligence team looking at some of the security um, and geopolitical risks around where we operate and the intelligence needed there. Um, and we also have, of course, my team, which is focusing on um, the technology, the innovation, the startup landscape, and bringing all those teams together, we start to create something really wonderful. Um, and in fact, even the way we work now is quite different to what it would have been. Uh, we're bringing in a lot of agile or Kanban-type methodologies. Um, so even if we're in our different respective teams in different parts of the organization, um, we're able to get together to say, you know, this is the challenge, this is the region we're approaching, or this is the new technology that we think is interesting, or this is where we think we might have a gap. And we can set up a squad where we, you know, work on a cross-functional basis and um, learn from each other. And, you know, you actually see the insights really come to life. I think it makes it even more powerful than, um, than if we were just sort of one intelligence team sitting somewhere in, in the company. So I love that. And it sounds, you know, I know you and I spoke at Intellicon, I was going to say just a couple months ago, probably seven or eight months ago now. And it sounds like this, this structure is relatively new. Um, and I love what you said about, about, you know, the collaboration, the communication and using, you know, agile. And I think you even mentioned Kanban, which was great. Mm -hmm. Um, how do you like maybe just you know paint a picture of a day or a week? You know how does this work in this sprawling global enterprise where you're, you're probably in every time zone around the world? You know how do you have that communication and collaboration in a in a in a way that that works? Yeah, I mean I think it's it's a really good question because I'm conscious and I guess every multinational faces this. Like, what is the typical day a day in the life of my team? Well, the danger is. The day can never stop, really, right? Because <laughs> you know, we are 24 hours yeah. in the Right. Um, and I think it's interesting, maybe the experience of that might vary depending on where you are, but certainly in the UK, on the one hand, you really benefit because you feel sort of in the midst of it all, but your day can stretch from Asia to the US and become 
really long if you're not careful. And I think this is particularly true in COVID times when we're working from home. Because yeah. um, the temptation is to say, oh, just just another half hour meeting, we'll just tag that on. And you know, so so learning some discipline around that is tough, but it's I think that's common, right? We all we all face that. I think the tools can help here though. Um, and this is where some of the, the agile methodology has really been paying off actually in, in my team in particular. Um, you know, we've become familiar with things like ADO, Azure DevOps, um, you know, and we don't use every single piece of the functionality of that product, but we use enough of it that it gives us um, a sort of way of coming together as a team, even if we are in different time zones still enough tracking of projects that we're working on together, enough of a record of, you know, what action's been taken and, you know, how much the backlog is building up and, um, and you know, we're starting to work together on how do we prioritize all the different things coming in and build some automation around you know, ways for people to, to field the requests into us as well. So really making the tools work for us, I think, is, is one key part of that. I think another thing is, you know, something around the sort of agile mindset as well. So, um, you know, we're, we're doing some some work on that at the moment. Sometimes it's different ways of thinking around how we work and, you know, even having a sort of team agreement on how we work. And, you know, so we're doing that kind of work with an agile coach at the moment as well. So these are all new things. It's, this is not how we used to work. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's bringing things to life in a sort of fast-paced, reinvigorated organization, and especially when you have to work across time zones as well. Yeah, and I think that that's really inspiring because it, it's, um, you know, whether we're, you know, talking about a small organization or, you know, a, a global giant like BP, I mean, it's, you can't have one department do everything. It's just, it, it's not scalable. And, and so I really like how, you know, how you've painted this picture, Angela, it's using, you know, technology and, and process improvement techniques for sure, but it's also just thinking about that blocking and tackling around project management, communication, collaboration. Uh, it's not just saying, here's that one tool that's going to solve our problems. It's, it's, uh, and it's, it's, it's brand new. It's going on right now. That's very exciting. It's really exciting. And I think a lot of it is also about just organizations are changing as well. You know, the world is changing, how people want to consume energy is changing. Organizations are changing to become less hierarchical, I would say, you know, and I think I think it, this pays testament to a lot of that as well, because it breaks down some of the old chains that you would have had um, and makes it much more of a sort of levelized playing field but we're all part of the team we're all bought into the success we all have a contribution to make this really valuable um, you know and, and I think it's, it's quite exciting from that point of view as well you know I think we don't even need to be in an office I mean I think we will go back to some form of an office at some point but you know like it's, it's completely dramatically uh, changed the way that you know, we used to think and we used to work which is exciting. Yeah. It is, and, and I like the point you've made about about kind of this disrupting, you know, entrenched hierarchies, and and you know, you know, and I would say, you know, for intelligence professionals, there's a big implication too. It's it's of course we want to support the CEO and the C-suite, you know, no, no doubt, but it's it's really you know the democratization of information and intelligence, and so that's an opportunity, but also a big challenge for us as intelligence professionals. How do we um, how do we distribute that intelligence to our internal stakeholders so that, you know, we're not sending the same newsletter to everyone at the same time every week? Any any thoughts, whether it is, you know, technology or, or simply just picking up the phone, how do you optimize or improve how you distribute intelligence to your internal colleagues at any level? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that is a, it's a good um 
question. I think, you know, often we do send actually the same newsletter to a huge distribution list across the organization. But Nothing it's not wrong always, with that. Not always a bad thing, no. Yeah. And, and often that comes from just a natural word of mouth growth, right? So it's a sort of good indicator that, hey, I'm on this and you should do this as well. So we do do stuff like that. But I think, I think you're right. You want to have um, the ear of the CEO. You also do want to be able to have some democratized um, access to information and intelligence because decisions are being made, you know, throughout the group. Um, and I also think it's something about democratization of even ideas coming back into the organization. You know? So, you know, we're, we're now looking to change the organization and, um, you know, we're, there's some big problems to solve in terms of how we change, right? And how do we decarbonize when we need to do that? And I think, um, you know, changing customer demands and needs and wants as well. And we really want to have um, the kind of organization where, People feel that they can throw in an idea about that and not worry about it. Or is it too silly? Or is it is it what if it's wrong? You know, we're trying to change a culture here. It's more actually just just throw it in anyway. Like if we don't if we don't run with it, it's no problem. It's the whole sort of fail fast thing. Um, so I think I think these tools and, and as long as long as you change the culture and the mindset with them, can help to create that. Um, and from the point of view of, of bringing intelligence out to the organization in order to sort of start up some of those ideas in the first place. Um, so I mentioned we do we do use newsletters. It's, 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 we find that, I almost find that they've got a resurgence of interest because it feels a bit to me like the podcast story, like, you know, everyone had one and then it's sort of, everyone turned a bit quiet and now everyone wants one again. <laughs> it feels a little bit like that. I think um, maybe because there is lots of new technology and here we're the technology team, so we love that. You know, we all yeah. chase that a little bit. And then we realized that actually there's some things that stand the test of time because sometimes keeping it simple is the right answer. And I think, um, yeah. you know, even externally, you're seeing this new trends towards newsletters. It's kind of like what was blogging becoming like newsletters. You've got Substack, you've got all these other things. And it just seems like it's coming becoming a thing again. And so I think off the back of that, we feel a lot of demand for that. But we do use technologies as well. So we have um, you know, a platform that we've built internally, um, which is our own sort of intelligence platform that anyone in the company can, can come along to. Um, and it's just built in SharePoint, right? It's, you know, it's, it's, it's really easily put together um, in some respects in the sense that that's, that's kit that you're likely to have. Um, but it's, you know, very powerful because um, people are able to come along and consume paid for authoritative content. It's not just anything from the internet. It's, it's things that, you know, are actually um, sourced and vetted and curated. Um, and they can keyword search in the same way as they would on Google, but it just so happens that they're searching the premium content. Um, and being able to have access to both, you know, people really, really value that. Um, and we've also brought in a number of different things that just make that whole experience more seamless. You know, things like single sign-on, you're already signed onto your computer, so you should be able to hop and skip between all these different third-party uh, resources without feeling any blocking. And, you know, just making that as seamless and as pain-free as possible, I think, is part of the democratization story. It also means you're more likely to get traction with someone like the CEO because, you know, Obviously, their time is at an absolute premium. So 
even something as simple as a password request is enough to, to stop them from you know, clicking through and reading something. Um, so the more it's seamless, the more we use technology to make it just really convenient. I think um, that's when it really becomes very valuable and beneficial. It, it's funny. I remember reading a study um, a couple of years ago that, that essentially the, the, the takeaway was this, give or take 20% of new technology initiatives fail. And, uh, and the reason is because people can't figure out or don't remember their login. So, so I mean, as you say, it's one of those simple things from a user perspective. But if you don't nail that and make it easy for for anyone, let alone the CEO, then it'll it'll be doomed to fail. So that's that's great. You've been thoughtful about that user experience. Well, yeah, and we have to be even from a cybersecurity point of view as well. And we're seeing in the press, as you know, that you know, oil and gas companies, some pretty famous cyber. Yeah. Um, yep things happening at the moment and I think um, you know if, if it's too hard for people to um, navigate all the passwords and so on then then you, you run the risk of um, you know less than optimum behaviors around those passwords and then you run some cyber risk as well so you know single sign-on and things like that to me it's just a win-win-win across you know the, the whole convenience to security to to everything really um, it's worth doing for sure and that's a good reminder. I like you know something you said a moment ago about almost you know keeping it simple, right? That that uh, <clears throat> there's nothing wrong with trends going in and out of fashion. There's you know the the blogging and the podcasting they they are coming back now. You you also talked about your CEO and um, you know in as much as BP is a big, large, diverse, everywhere enterprise, you know you have one CEO and. And your CEO is committed to a pretty bold goal. And so, for those of you who don't know, it's for BP to be, uh, you know, you know, net zero carbon by 2050. Um, I, I don't want to move the date for you, so 2050. So, give or take 30 years. Um, I mean, that's a big goal. So, what what kind of effect does that have on how you and your team operate from an intelligence perspective? Yeah, I mean, I think. Um... You know, so actually the goal we've articulated is it's net zero by 2050 or sooner. So it's okay to move that date a little bit in the sense that- <laughs> No pressure, no pressure though. <laughs> if we can get it done sooner, you know, we will. Um, and, and that's really just a way of saying, you know, this is not some date that's a way out there that, you know, we'll get to. It's more that actually that's the realistic pathway because there's so much to do and it is really, really challenging. Um, but it's also a way of saying, well, 2050 or sooner means we start now. We, we really we really do get after it from now on. Um, we have a number of other targets on the way there as well. And I think for the point of view of what does this mean for my team? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think for any team, having you know, a goal and a vision to work towards is always motivating and it helps to make sure that everyone is, is part of the same ambition and we're on the same page and we know what we're working towards. Um, I think the net zero by 2050 is, is particularly important because, you know, since uh, since Bernard, our CEO, laid out that ambition, we're seeing many, many others uh, do the same, right? There's other companies who have made similar um, ambition statements. We've got countries and nation states doing the same. Um, you know, it, the world is conscious that this is something that has to happen. We have to change the dial from the fact that we're on such an unsustainable path at the moment. It, it needs to be, it needs to happen. Um, and when the stakes are as high as that, I think that becomes particularly motivating. And so for the team, it's like, well, okay, we've got 
serious purpose here. Like we've got something that really matters, that we really want to be successful, we want to achieve, we want to work towards that. Um, so I think I think the first thing is it's motivating. And then the second thing is it seems a long time away, but in oil and gas or energy terms, it's it's actually we're used to thinking in multi-decade uh, projects. You know, I mean BP's obviously been around for hundreds of millions of years and um, you know, and that's it's a long time and, and a lot of the, the projects that have existed along the way have been, you know, multi-decade engineering projects at scale, but they always have um, steps along the path. You know, you still have lots to achieve on the way there. Uh, and I think the same is true here. So we will be looking to do things like, for example, ramping up renewables. Well, it starts now. If you're going to, um, you know, be successful over this decade or the next decade, you have to start investing now. Like it's going to take time to grow and scale these businesses. Um, and for our team, you know, the technology innovations along the way are what's key. Um, you know, the great thing about there being such um, momentum behind this now is that there's a very um, strong hunger for it, there's a thriving innovation landscape, there's money behind it. All of that means the technology and the innovations will start coming apace, they already are. Um, so even though it's a long-term goal, we're kind of running to catch up to make sure we're fully aware every day of what's the latest thing coming out, what should we not miss, what what could we deploy now to do it even more efficiently. And, and so it's it's an interesting combination of both. It's, it's a really sort of fast-paced, focusing on the short-term with a view to the long-term success. Um, and then I think the only other thing I would say on that as well is, so obviously you can kind of think to yourself, right, 2050, 30, 30-odd years in, and I suppose it depends what age you are, what that really means to you. <laughs> sure, <laughs> definitely it does, yeah. So I'm 41, and so I, I, I sit there and I think, right, so will I still, will I still be around in 2050, bit of a strange thing to sort of, you, know, you, you think to yourself, okay, hopefully, hopefully, I'm going to try my best to make it there. Um, and you know, partly that's because I'm very stubborn, Cam, like, I want to know for sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very successful, um, and so I'd like to think that you know, get to twenty fifty, we, we could repeat this session. Maybe you know, we'll be in person. We'll be a bit older. Like, It'll be can... holograms. We'll have holograms, and and yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly right. The technology that will make it yeah. possible, hard to imagine, but I'm sure it'll be amazing. And um, you know, and and it, it would be great, obviously, to be able to, um, however we do it, virtually or real life, you know, chink the glass and say. Thank goodness we actually managed to do that and feel proud that you know, the whole world literally has worked together towards that um, successful goal. I think really that's the way to look at it is, is to bring that sort of humanity to it. Um, and ultimately, this is about what we want to leave for the next generation who will live you know, well, well beyond that. And you know, it's, it's a, as important as that. So it's a big motivator, I think. Yeah. It, it, it's got to be, and 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 as you say, you know, you're in an industry. Well, I mean, as much as it's fair to say, BP's in an industry. I mean, really, you know, yeah. quite diverse within in, within energy. But you know, the development cycles, you know, the investment cycles are are far longer than than probably you know any other industry. And so, just because it's a 30 year challenge, it's it's you're not daunted by it, which is which is admirable. And it's also, I love how you've shared, Angela. It's energizing for your team. The flip side of that, 
is you have your shells and your exons and there, you know, there's that different group in, in, you know, in your organization, in BP, where they, they are doing, you know, competitor tracking there. And, you know, I, I'm not a CI expert at BP, but I got to believe that it's a little bit harder to hide massive multi-billion dollar investment in oil fields uh, than, you know, than uh, finding that tiny startup or that, you know, university, uh, uh, you know, grant funded project. Um, from an intelligence perspective, wow, different worlds, right? You know, the massive competitor monitoring and tracking, and then, you know, looking in, you know, startup venture funding, probably even someone's garage for the next great idea that might help with the decarbonization goal. Um, any, any thoughts on, you know, finding those innovations out of these small companies where, you know, you're looking for needles in a haystack? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, sometimes it's, it depends because, for some of them, it's not as hard as you think because they've got, they're so proud of the good idea that they really want to make sure that it's known, right? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the challenge could actually almost be like, you know, cutting through the hype and, or just the passion and, you know, getting through to what's, what's real and, and, you know, what's, where's the real business opportunity and what's going to make a difference. Um, I think, you know, we do have, of course, the exciting but daunting challenge of just how much there is going on. It's good there's so much going on. That shows that um, the opportunity is now. It shows that there's real money out there. It shows that people are, um, you know, maybe even living through a pandemic means that people have more time at home, which means they have more time to actually craft those ideas that had always been somewhere in the back of their minds, right? So I'm fully expecting to see lots of, lots of innovation. And I think um yes our challenge is you know tracking that effectively and we don't want to be um you know missing that one thing that you wish wish you'd known and if only you found it um so i think our job I, within my team is really to minimize the risk of missing something that we really should have known that we really should have seen coming and there's a number of different ways of doing it i think you know one way is of course the tools and techniques that we have um, so within my team, as you heard in the intro, I've got you know a, a wonderful diverse team, and they include data scientists. So um, may actually be watching this now. We've got um, Evgeny and Olga, who are the data scientists in my team. Hi there. Um, and you know, so we're and we also have very very powerful analysts as well. So we may have Anthony and Nikos also watching. Um, and you bring the two together, and you can have a, a situation where you can specify um with certainty the keywords that you want to be tracking for you the buzzwords in the industry that you want to be tracking for um types of industry areas where we want to find startups um the regions that are you know regions and cities that are maybe more likely to be where we would invest because that's where we've already got a relationship or we're already doing something and various other parameters that you can build into the machine and then the machine can pick up some of the hard work for you in terms of scanning these huge data sets. Um, so we do have you know, some of the best of breed patent search tools and the best of breed university research tools and the best of breed um, you know, startup uh, platforms as well. Um, but we're also building the capability to give just the machines picking up a lot of the hard work of scanning across all of them for us. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is, of course, your networks. And, you know, I think, um, you know, we, we work very closely with our, our colleagues in BP Ventures, for example, you know, when we might make minority uh, state investments in startups. And I think part of 
the technique of doing that is to make sure that you have um, the right networks in place so that you're rubbing shoulders with the right people at conferences, albeit virtually, um, you know, that you're um, getting warm introductions to, to people who, who are doing something interesting in the space that you're interested in. And so it's an interesting combination of, you know, the digital, the technologies that can help you, but not forgetting that human angle, right? People need to know that, um, that you're serious about this and you're out there building those relationships and that they can bring ideas to you as well. I think social media is remarkably helpful as well. And, you know, I think, um, you know, the other thing we've got built into our intelligence arsenal here is, is actually just having a really good uh, presence on LinkedIn and Twitter and, you know, Instagram and, and other places as well, because a lot of the, uh, the network that you build that you, you, know, you might not necessarily meet at a conference because you may be in different countries or, you know, pandemics going on. But through the social media um, links that you, you make, you actually end up making those connections. And that's how you end up finding out about that, that, that wonderful idea that you wanted to miss. So as long as you're doing all these different techniques, um, and there's a lot to be said for, obviously, uh, again, bringing it back to not forgetting some of the old reliable uh, methods as well of, you know, keeping up to date in your fields, like doing your reading and, you know, um, listening to those podcasts and like keeping tapped into to, to the, the knowledge as, it, as it's being publicized um, you know, is, is also important. And so between us as a team, we're doing all of that. And I think that's helping us to keep, um, you know, properly abreast of all the, the innovations that we do want to try and then act as a really good filter for the organization as well. That, that that's great. And there's something that you mentioned a moment ago, as well as earlier. I'd love to pick up on, and and you you first mentioned it in the in the context, Angela, of your of your you know internal SharePoint um, tool that you have set up, and you 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 mentioned this idea about you know use my words and and not say it as well, but you know like data integrity, data quality, so that you know the information that makes it in there has been you know groomed and it's trusted. Um, now now something that that. You know, we as intelligence professionals, you know, obviously need to worry about is not just the quality of the the data and information that we're getting, whether it's from secondary sources or you know from primary work, but obviously, you know, there are all the ethical considerations we have to factor into as well. Um, you know, when we conduct primary research, are we doing it in an appropriate legal ethical manner? But then all of a sudden, when we're accessing and buying these secondary databases. You know, how, how do we know that data or information was collected? And so it, it's kind of a, it opens up this, you know, huge notion of, of, you know, thinking about data privacy, data integrity, the quality of the data, the ethics with which it was collected. Um, how do you, how do you, you know, whether it's technological gates or just even just talking and raising the collective IQ about, you know, ethics and how primary should be done. How do you spread that word within BP so that that you know you're you're focusing on true north? Yeah, I mean I think it's it's a really good point, especially in today's world where there are so many different opportunities to get, you know, what seems like freely available open source information, but actually could come with a serious quality check apart from anything else, even even with the ethics. You know, I think again from our perspective, you know, um, in oil and gas, this is something that's been top of the agenda for a long time because um, a lot of what we do is 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 operate throughout the world, and you know, part of that involves trust, right? We need to trust with our uh, counterparties, trust with our supply chains, trust with our governments that are hosting us in their countries. That is, there's so many relationships that we need to make sure that we 
um, you know, manage in value and therefore, and I, I think what that le leads to is, is highly ethical practice because, um, you know, everyone needs you know, very strong intelligence and insight to be operating, you know, across the globe in, in that field. Um, but we also, uh, we all want that to be successful and ethically done. So um, what tends to happen is um, you work with trusted providers effectively. So, um, you know, there are, there are go-to providers for getting uh, information that um, is only ever ethically sourced. And it's, it's usually, um, you know, through interviews and other, other methods with, with other um, multinational companies who work in the industry, but it's always with a, um, you know, everything done properly in terms of who's asking for the information, who will it be shared with, um, you know, those who sign up to share information know exactly where it's going and, um, you know, and all of those signing up get, do so under the understanding that they'll each mutually get to see each other's kind of feedback and responses. And so there's ways of doing that that you can just build in trust and it's mutual trust, it's in everyone's interest. Um, and as a result, we do take that really seriously. It does mean that, you know, sometimes you might pay more effectively to have a trusted provider working with you, but we do think that it's worth it. I think it's an investment that pays off um, rather than taking any, any undue risk there. Yeah, that's, it, it. it's smart. And I think, you know, I, I, I like what you said earlier about, you know, the you know, kind of the passion for the goal of decarbonization. I think it's the same thing here. I mean, it's just, it, it, Economics are always a consideration, but they can't be the only one, right? It's it's you know the even if it costs more, there's a right way to do this, and that's great that the that that's the message. I think so, and I think you know in, in a high risk uh, industry like like energy always is, you know, there's the real understanding, and you know, largely a huge engineering base as well. So there's a strong understanding that even if the information is slightly off, the, the implications are, are significant, you know? So that appreciation data quality is something that's just literally in the DNA of the company, which I think is, you know, as an intelligence professional, it, that we're kind of lucky to have that because yeah. we do really convince people, um, which I know is not always the case in every type of organization, you know, um, but it's, it's, it's just, it, it's part of how we work. So, you know. I think you probably just made more than a few people on this session jealous, Angela, with the, that comment about data quality. So that's, but that that's tremendous, though. I mean, it really helps a company, um, you know, make tough calls with just a little bit less conflict, right? I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are obviously lots of spirited conversations when, when you know, a data analysis suggests something different than than conventional wisdom, but it it probably helps, you know, take the temperature down just a little bit in the room. Yeah, I think so, and you know, I think. Um, that is a really important point. I mean, one of the things that we, part of that building trust in the organization is that we, we do really strongly want my team to be in a position where they can go to the executive team, decision makers in the company and actually bring data that we, yes, might actually challenge, um, you know, a held belief. But as long as we can demonstrate that um, it's been gathered appropriately, it's been queried effectively, that there's been real careful consideration um, and that we're bringing them actual insight, you know, off the back of that. Then I think that that's part of the role of an intelligence professional. Um, 
you know, actually sometimes we should bring people data that, you know, challenges or questions the existing strategy is part of our role. Um, yeah, we need to be, you know, empowered to do that for sure. And, and one thing that you, you've talked about a couple times I want to pick up on is, you know, about, about, you know, five, seven minutes left. And, and I think um, I've always been impressed with your focus on developing people. Um, you know, not, not just in the, you know, BA better intelligence professional, which, you know, of course, but, you know, really thinking about, about, you know, your team as, as people where you think about work-life balance, um, you're, you're very mindful of that, which, you know, first off, just want to, want to, you know, say, I appreciate that a great deal is, as, as we think about career pathing for intelligence professionals, mm -hmm. um, you know, some of us are, uh, you know, aspire towards doing other things, um, you know, whether that might be being in strategy, maybe it is, you know, I love being a report writer and I only want to do like super geeky analysis. So there are a lot of paths out there. Any thoughts as a leader of crazy smart, intelligent people um, on, on, you know, developing skills in areas maybe they're not good or how do you get exposure for that next step in your career, whether it is, you know, being in strategy or, becoming a data scientist? How do you help someone on that journey as a manager? Yeah, I think, um, you know, one of the ways of doing it almost comes back to what we were saying at the beginning about these agile working methodologies, because it's ripping up what we used to know about organizations. So you don't have to feel that you're only part of one team anymore in the sense that you can, you know, work squad-like on different projects with different areas of the company. Um, and I think, you know, if you're lucky enough to be in a company as big as BP, that, that offers a lot of opportunity to get exposure to all types of different fields. Um, and I think that's one of the most effective ways of uh, learning and development because we all learn on the job effectively. We learn from you know, mentoring and watching others and, you know, almost being kind of partially embedded while you're on those projects, I think is, is one way of doing it. I equally think bringing expertise from the company into your team. So as you heard in the introduction, my team is not actually really a team of CI professionals. It's, it's, we have some of those, of course, um, but we also have data scientists and we also have engineers and we also have you know, people who have specialized in geophysics and geoscience and so on. Um, and bringing that together is when it becomes really, really powerful because we all learn from each other, um, but also it means the insight we pull together is so on point for what the organization really cares about. And um, I think I think that's a really effective way of doing it. The only other thing I would add as well is, especially if you are spending more time at home in the current environment, there's so many different ways of learning and development now. There's you know, obviously LinkedIn learning and lots of these sort of online courses where you can learn. Even just a TED talk, I find that, you know, watching um, Brene Brown and other people like that, I've learned more. She's great, she's great, yeah. Yeah, and you know, so there's so many opportunities to learn. Um, I mean, there's also, um, even startups in this space, right? The whole, people are, are looking at disrupting learning in all, in all kinds of ways, because again, digital is making that possible. Um, you know, so I think even the fact that people use YouTube to show and tell how to do things, you know, if you want to be a Zoom pro, right, you can be. Um, <laughs> yeah. So. You know, so I really think it's, it's it's thinking kind of like we're thinking about the organization differently, we're all working differently, it's even thinking about learning differently. It doesn't have to be super structured, it doesn't have to be, I mean, it can be, but it doesn't have to be all the ways that you would have done it before. And, um, you know, and I also think organizations as a result should be open to looking at um, different skills and different types of qualifications as well. I think all of that is changing, which I think is exciting. Yeah. 
That's so with, with a couple minutes left, just, just, um, you know, first off, Angela, want to thank you so much. This has been fascinating. We've covered probably 16 different topics. Um, and so want to thank you for, for letting us, you know, take you on a, a you know, tour around the world. Um, as we, you know, either around the corner of the pandemic or, you know, depending on where we are in the world, um, start to hopefully see some kind of normalcy. Um, maybe just some thoughts about some of the work that you and your team were able to do, I think, as, as Errol mentioned early on, um, you know, about, about how you supported, um, you know, BP and others through this crazy, terrible pandemic. I think that, you know, it's, it's a, a neat story about a different use of, of your great skill set of you and your team. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's, obviously it's 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 hard to um reflect on because it is you know not nothing you would ever wish on anyone of course but we did rise to the challenge um and you know one of the first things we did was uh, effectively crowdsource ideas so bringing it back to this democratizing of ideas um we were at least in the uk when we first realized that this was serious um and global in nature and we thought, right, okay, well, what, what will we do? What can we do to help? And of course, everybody wanted to help. So we needed some way of collecting those ideas. Mm-hmm. And so using digital tools, we were able to say, okay, um, we'll crowdsource the ideas and you know, just, just keep posting them no matter what they are, no matter how small, no matter if you feel like you're repeating someone else's, whatever it is, just keep putting it. And so we sorted through everything that came in and it became like a prioritization process in itself of you know what's doable what's achievable what can we actually do in a short space of time and there's urgency here and so on um, and a lot of the ideas that we did pursue were um, you know in the UK there was around things like we were able to provide uh, your free fuel to the emergency services and you know free coffee to um, you know NHS workers and um, lots of things around um, di- different things that were sponsored around initiatives like working with different partners. So we worked with Delivery, for example, to bring you know food and meals to to those working you know uh, on the front line. And we you know did lots of things around um, even sponsoring bikes, like they call them bikes for heroes, of people working in the NHS, and you had to get to the hospital and back, and you know a whole host of different things. That but it was it was really very powerful, I think, because um, you know. Comes back to what we we're saying around making things as convenient as possible, but also as human as possible. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're working in a hospital on a late shift, and you know you, you need to be able to go and just get a cup of coffee, and you've both got your mask on, and you're looking in your eyes, meet. You know, those types of human interactions are are, are really what what matters in a, in a situation like, like the one we're facing. And it's the same around the world. We did different things, you know, with with different uh, regions depending on. Um, you know, when the pandemic hit and what people are facing, we are doing things just now with uh, our partner in, in India as well. It continues to be heartbreaking, but also um, where people want to help. And, you know, I think our team was able to play some small part in that in terms of you know, rising to that challenge. And, you know, even though we were all working from home, we focused on that. And the other thing we did, of course, was what, what we specialize in, provide information. Um, so, we did set up tracking, which is still running now on you know, lots and lots of different um, authoritative sources, again, for getting information around uh, COVID-19. And you know, some of those are more 
scientific type databases and then we've got some more uh, commercially focused databases as well that we've been looking at, at that and you know so it meant that we ended up with new internal customers i think that we hadn't really had before and that was for example a global health team and also even facilities management team because a lot of the uh, the narrative is around you know do we go back to the office and what does the office look like of the future and you know how do we do that safely and so there's so many things that you know new decisions that have to be made and they all require information and insight and so um yes we've, we've been a key part of that and i think we'll continue to be so um, for some time i mean it's it's so impressive because i i have to say i think one of the i don't think we've used the word agility or, or nimbleness you know in our conversation but what really strikes me is just how you know, you as the leader and, and, and your team has, have they been able to just adapt and be agile, you know, whether it's, you know, okay, let's, let's support this crazy goal to, you know, decarbonize in 30 years. And you know what, we're going to get it done sooner to, to, you know, doing these amazing things as you described, uh, you know, with, with, you know, bicycles, uh, giving coffee to NHS workers. I mean, it's tremendous. And I think it, you know, the, the takeaway for me, Angela, is that, you know, the toolkit of the intelligence professional is incredibly powerful. And we can apply it to lots of different ways, you know, within our organizations, but also beyond the four walls. Um, and yeah, it's it's uh, that is just a really I think it's a really powerful lesson or reminder for all of us that you know the good we can bring to our companies, but also to the world. Well, yeah, and just just how critical um, you know a function it is, right? I mean, ultimately, um, when you need to be really nimble at that, when something unexpected comes along and the organization goes into survival mode, and you need Decisions need to be made fast. Um, you know, if you, if you can provide the information needed to to those that are tasked with making those decisions, and you know they know that they're they're still having to take a call, but they're doing it on the best available insight they have that you have. I mean, it's just um, you know that that's as valuable as it gets, and I think that, that should be the aspiration for all of us for sure. Angela, thank you so much for joining us. We're incredibly grateful for, for your expertise, your kindness, and you're just an inspiration for all of us. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. For competitive intelligence best practices, community training, and the SKIP Code of Ethics, visit skip.org.